is an Odyssey original. This is KX In Depth. I'm Rob Archer. In today for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. We go in depth into the president's aggressive speech and whether it could sway people in the middle come the November midterm elections. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Court documents show the FBI found dozens of empty document folders labeled classified at Mar-a-Lago. But where are the contents and are we ever going to find out? And new COVID boosters are coming, but when and how easy will it be to get them? Russia is putting pressure on Europe when it comes to natural gas. We go in depth into how the war in Ukraine is disrupting the flow. California's electric grid is under strain. If it's strained now, what about when more electric vehicles are on the road and getting charged? A new analysis finds red flag gun laws to take away firearms from dangerous people are being underutilized. And we will end with the paradox of happiness. Do not try too hard to find it. We'll explain. That sounds like a Netflix series. The paradox of paradox of happiness. Ten episodes, an hour each. What do you think? New episodes every Friday. (laughs) We start with President Biden's speech calling out MAGA Republicans. With us is Stephen Farnsworth, professor of political science at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia. He focuses, by the way, on mass media and the presidency. Thanks for being with us. So how would you characterize Mr. Biden's speech yesterday? Uh, I've heard many different descriptions of it, some favorable, some, as one can imagine, not so favorable. But how do you think the history books are going to record this one? Well, I think we're in a special moment in American politics. And so uh, Biden really was looking at a uh, a real need, in his view, to come up with something very, very clear and definitive about where we are in this country. I mean, in the January 6th insurrection, the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol was the first case where the peaceful transfer of power uh, from one president to the next was Uh, basically thwarted for several hours. That process um, also uh, to this day is a key area of dispute between uh, the uh, folks on the the Biden side of the politics and the the way he called them MAGA Republicans. I think one of the things that Biden did was very effective was to make clear that this isn't an attack on all Republicans. It's an attack on Republicans uh, who are basically acolytes of of Donald Trump, who will believe that the election was stolen even when it wasn't, who will believe um, whatever uh, Donald Trump says, including uh, that there's no big deal with respect to the information found at Mar-a-Lago. You know, one of the complaints uh, from some on the right is that uh, the portion of his speech was uh, unprecedented and that he directly called who is right now the front runner of the Republican nomination for president in 2024, a threat to American democracy, calling him out and his uh, close-knit supporters by name. Uh, how unprecedented was that? And, and, of course, I understand we are talking about politics where hyperbole rules the day. Well, of course, it's unprecedented, but the situation that led up to it is also unprecedented. You know, when can we find in American history a president leaving office trying to use every means, legal and illegal, to stay in power? When can we find an American president who um, builds 
the energy and enthusiasm for a mob that he is about to set loose on the U.S. Capitol. I think that uh, that Biden would, in his if he had his preferences, would prefer to work with Mitch McConnell's of this world. But the reality is that uh, Donald Trump is the threat that he sees and he wants to identify. Uh, and uh, that is uh, unprecedented on both sides. So when this speech was being crafted, who do you think they thought the president's advisors, who do they think the audience was? I think what they're trying to do is create a wedge on the Republican side above all. You know, are you a Republican who believes that the election was stolen? Are you a Republican who is willing to believe that national security matters don't matter when you're thinking about all the cavalier and dangerous ways that America's top secrets were handled at Mar-a-Lago? I think that over and over again, if you look at that speech with respect to when the president was talking about Republicans, he was trying to create a sense of the Republicans maybe that he knew when he was in the Senate, the Republicans that he used to work with, um, and trying to disrupt, just create a distinction between uh, those more traditional Republicans, conservatives, yes, but not necessarily Trump conservatives, and uh, the Trump supporters. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Stephen Barnesworth, professor of political science at the University of Mary Washington in Virginia. He focuses on mass media and the presidency. Right now, though, we are learning more about what the FBI found during its search at former President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. A newly unsealed court file says agents found four dozen empty document folders marked classified. Many of them were in the former president's office. If there are folders, where, though, are the contents of these folders? Bobby Shemulian is a legal analyst and criminal defense attorney here in Los Angeles. Bobby, thanks for being with us. So it does raise intriguing and yet at the moment, I suppose, unanswerable questions about why are there top secret classified folders with nothing in them? I think that's right. You hit this one, the nail right on the head. This is a bombshell revelation, and it's raising the prospect, at least that, at least for now, the Department of Justice hasn't yet recovered the documents that would have been in these empty folders. You know, it. I don't work for intelligence agencies, but it seems to me if these documents are missing, don't our intelligence services have to operate under the assumption that foreign governments have seen these missing documents and if they relate to any operations that we are carrying out uh, overseas, that those operations are now burned. Yeah, that's that's right. And that's certainly a concern now that these reports have been made uh, based on the court publishings today. But at least there's been reports from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence about risk assessments that they're conducting uh, about the, uh, these retention of these classified documents and folders and that They've at least signaled for now that they believe that uh, this material hasn't otherwise been compromised. Okay, so let's let's look at it, though, from the innocent explanation explanation. Uh, Could it just be that that I mean, we know that a lot of these folders were kind of strewn about. They weren't exactly neatly filed in a cabinet. You know, things fall out of folders. Could it just be that? in the process of moving folders around here and there, some some highly classified, top secret, really important government paperwork fell out. 
that, that sounds like a, a really terrifying <laughs> thought, right? Really reckless, but there is still a presumption of innocence. I'm glad, I'm glad, yeah, you guys recognize that. Listen, I think that this is certainly uh, the information that was gleaned here, where the files were found, the locations, uh, like in Trump's office, in boxes with other memorabilia. Uh, the, the Department of Justice had has added in their status report recently that they do intend to use all the evidence about the documents, including the their nature and their location uh, in their criminal investigation. And it, it seems like as things are building up, this thing could be moving towards being presented to a grand jury. Okay, you being a criminal defense attorney, if uh, you were advising Trump, uh, Mr. Trump and his team, uh, what strategy would you recommend and what do you make of the strategy they've utilized so far? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, my strategies with my clients are completely confidential. So uh, uh, who, who knows what will come of this? The, I think that his attorneys are, are scrambling, dealing with uh, bombshell revelations uh, as you know, as we're receiving them, they're probably also uh, at times they're getting discovery during this process. They're having negotiations with the other side. So nothing has been filed yet. So I, I think his attorneys at this point, uh, it seems they're doing a great job because that's really what it's about. And right now with the information that we have, I can tell you with my experience, this is just a tiny maybe glimpse into the case that the Department of Justice has who they may be looking into. Uh, and it's it's hard to really, uh, at this point, have have solid answers about how things are going. Well, let me raise another sort of presumption of innocence uh, question, because there are two different issues here, right? Uh, on the one hand, there's the legal question of whether or not Mr. Trump had the right to bring these documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. That's number one. But then the other issue, which is which goes to the government's uh, what appears to be it's uh, focusing on obstruction of justice uh, issue is, you know, did he uh, secret these documents, move them about Mar-a-Lago in an effort to conceal them? And it's that question that seems to me to be a difficult one to answer because he lives in a giant estate with lots of people who are roaming around all over the place. Couldn't he make the argument or his lawyers make the argument that, well, you know, Mr. Trump can't keep track of everybody at Mar-a-Lago who might have access and moving these folders around. He didn't do them. Exactly right. These cases are really uh, come down to, and the and pro prosecutors may have an issue with the intent. In the end, they're going to have to show that there was some type of criminal intent with these types of charges. And that could be a, a pretty difficult hurdle for them to to overcome in this case. All right. We thank certainly you so don't know Trump's. Uh, we don't know his motivations. He hasn't made those uh, public. All right. Thank you so much. Bobby Shemulian, legal analyst and uh, criminal defense attorney here in L.A. And coming up, California's electric grid under strain now. But what will happen if we all have to charge electric vehicles in the future? And everyone wants to be happy all the time. But that goal could be doing more harm than good. Right now, the revised and revamped COVID-19 boosters will be rolling out now that both the FDA and CDC have approved them. 
But when exactly are we going to get them? With us is Dr. Richard Dang, president of the California Pharmacists Association and professor at the USC School of Pharmacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. So uh, how far away are these boosters in uh, before we can get them? And do we have enough? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, the FDA and CDC did approve the new COVID vaccine boosters, which is really exciting. It will help us uh, really address the new Omicron strains that are going around. Um the shipments of these new vaccines actually have already started. Um, some pharmacies are starting to receive them today. So I think realistically, most people will have wide availability of the vaccines as early as next week on Tuesday due to the Labor Day uh, holiday. Yeah, I was going to ask, because I remember, and I'm sure you do too, when the original vaccines came out and everybody was told, and I remember we said on the air, the vaccines are coming. And then people would say to us, but we can't find any. And then the boosters were available, we were told, and people came in and again, they said to us, we can't find any. You don't think that's going to happen this time? I think it'll depend on how large the demand is. And I think we are expecting a fairly large interest in demand. So I would definitely recommend that appointments be made. Um, but, you know, shipment is going out and they are going to be ramping up. So I believe, you know, that we would be able to meet the demands over the coming weeks. You talked about demand. Uh, how is demand for these uh, new boosters? Or do you think some people are, are kind of like, well, I got the other boosters. I, I can wait on these. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of interest with the um, patients that we speak with and with the friends and colleagues that I have in my community. I think we're, um, based on that, expecting to see pretty large interest in these new boosters. But are we going to have, do you think, the same degree in the end of, of kind of disappointment as people got, for example, the original shots, thinking that they were now all, all done with it, then they were told they needed to get a booster, and they thought they were all done with it? Then they were told they needed another booster and they would be all done with it. Now they're getting this booster. When will they be done with it? Yeah, you know, that seems to be the nature of this virus. It seems to be mutating and changing. You know, even when we look at the original booster, it was actually really effective early on um, with the earlier strains. But then as the um, virus did change and mutate to now the current Omicron strain, we did see less effectiveness. So I think we're going to see a potential future where some of these uh, vaccines might be something that we might need on an annual basis just to keep up with the changing virus. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, it, it, you know, they were predicting this uh, not too long ago. They were saying that, you know, this, this is going to be an annual thing like your flu shot. And mm -hmm. uh, th these new boosters are kind of pointing us in that direction, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's looking like now that we now that we have some more experience with the virus and how it's changing. Um, I, I think we're definitely looking at a potential future where we would have these annual vac uh, vaccines. And I would hope that in the future we would have a combination vaccine with the flu and COVID to make it easier as well. Now, timing, of course, is where it gets tricky, right? The CDC is saying that you should get these boosters uh, or are eligible to get these boosters so long as the last shot you got uh, was two months ago, right? But then it becomes kind of murky. So, OK, you've passed two months. Do you then do this booster on your third month? Do you wait to your fifth month? Do you do it on your sixth month? When do you do it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the minimum, as you mentioned, should be two months after the last dose of your booster. And, you know, there can be some gray areas in certain situations where some people might get it at three or four. But I think the bottom line messaging for me is get it as soon as it's available and as soon as you can after two months uh, after your last dose. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard Dang, president of the California Pharmacists Association and professor at the USC School of Pharmacy. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. And for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Europe could be facing a major energy crisis this winter. Russia says it will not immediately resume natural gas exports to the continent through its Nord Stream 1 pipeline. That pipeline made up about 35 percent of Europe's total Russian gas imports last year. Russia and much of Europe are at odds over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Daniel Treisman is a Russian politics and economics expert and political science professor at UCLA. Thanks for being with us. So the Russians, uh, I was reading, they are claiming that the pipeline is down for repair and needed parts. But I take it that most people outside of Russia are just not buying that? Well, it's not the first time it's uh, it's gone down because of uh, accidents or maintenance and uh, and upkeep. Uh, they've been doing this repeatedly over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, so I think that uh, explanation has worn a little thin. Uh, where else can Europe get uh, these supplies? And are there enough supplies to get? Well, it's tricky. I mean, the uh, Europeans have been uh, filling up their storage uh, containers, their storage capacity. And uh, Germany's actually ahead of schedule and expects to hit 85% uh, full capacity uh, in the next few days. Uh, So that's one thing, but uh, they're looking all over. So France and uh, Italy have been looking to Algeria. Uh, Germany has uh, been planning on building uh, offshore uh, liquefied natural gas uh, refineries uh, and uh, is hoping to import uh, LNG from the U.S., uh, maybe Qatar, which is another very big exporter uh, of, uh, of liquefied gas. I remember in the very beginning months of this uh, war between Russia and, and Ukraine, uh, I remember various experts saying that, uh, you know, at least until we get to the winter months, uh, you know, U- Ukraine actually had a lot in its favor. It, it had, of course, the resolve of its people. It had uh, large infusions of, of weapons and money from the U.S. and Western allies. But then a lot of those experts cautioned that if it extended into the winter, which they didn't think it was going to at the time, that then it becomes a much more favorable situation for the Russians. Are we now at the sort of cusp of where it becomes more favorable to the Russians? Well, it's hard to draw some kind of overall uh, conclusion about the balance of advantages, but clearly uh, the defender has an advantage. It's much easier to to, uh, become entrenched and defend positions than it is uh, to attack. And now it looks like the the Russians are hunkering down in the south of Ukraine uh, in the trenches and they're going to be defending territory. And uh, it's the very challenging task for the Ukrainians at this point uh, to take back that territory. So that's one thing. Second, uh, obviously, this uh, energy crisis in Europe gets much worse in the winter. So that's some leverage that the Russians have. Uh, On the other hand, the Europeans have been preparing for this. So uh, it may end up being not as severe as initially thought. Um, So clearly, uh, there are some things in Russia's favor But on the other hand, we have to recognize that uh, we didn't expect to be here at this point, that Ukrainians have fought back and basically uh, they're on the offensive now uh, and uh, they've basically held the line. So that's that's an incredible achievement for the Ukrainians.
You know, by most accounts, Russia's economy is in trouble, uh, obviously, uh, you know, with sanctions and uh, other countries stopping trade with Russia because of this war in Ukraine. Uh, is Stopping the gas flow, that's eventually going to rebound on Russia and hurt them more, isn't it? I think it's significant, but even more significant is the oil uh, trade, uh, Russia's oil exports. And we just saw the G7 come out with this plan to cap the price of uh, Russia's oil exports. So they're going to basically uh, try and do that via the insurance and shipping markets and make it very difficult for Russia to insure or ship exports uh, around the world uh, if they're priced above a certain low level that will be agreed uh, among the among the various countries. Uh, so I think that if it works, and there's certainly some question about that, but if it works, could have a an even more significant economic uh, effect on Russia than than the whole gas market. But, you know, uh, despite the fact that the uh, economy in Russia is not doing well from the metrics that we can tell. Uh, I also remember lots of, of people saying, including our government, uh, a few months ago, that be patient. In a few months' time, these sanctions are really going to impact the Russians, implying that that is going to, at some point, mitigate their behavior. That hasn't happened. Why? Well, I, I think there's, there's two parts to that. First of all, uh, are they going to feel the effects worse over the course of months and years? I think the answer there is yes. Uh, these sanctions, uh, the strongest effect of the sanctions is through the cutoff of high-tech imports to Russia, which will uh, increasingly uh, run, you know, cause their civil aviation to run down. They won't have airplanes to replace the ones that are uh, broken down. It'll cause factories and a whole range of industries to grind to a halt. So that's going to happen uh, over time. Um, so the sanctions have impact. They don't have this immediate silver bullet uh, effect, but they do have impact. The second question is whether that will cause Russia to behave differently. And there, I think, uh, actually, the West was was quite realistic. Nobody expected Putin uh, to uh, withdraw his troops and say, whoops, I made a mistake. Uh, let's get back to normal. Uh, it, it, he's determined, he's, he's gambled big, and he's really committed. So I think the, the real aim of the sanctions is, is less at this point to get Putin to rethink, uh, although, of course, that would be welcome. Uh, it's more about uh, just undermining his capacity to keep fighting this war, uh, taking away the revenues, uh, taking away the ability to replenish these stocks of high-tech weapons and so on, so that he just accepts at a certain point uh, that he can't get further uh, and he has to limit his uh, military involvement. All right. Thanks so much. Daniel Treisman, Russian politics and economics expert and political science professor at UCLA. Well, this uh, massive statewide heat wave, it is it is leading to, of course, flex alerts, which are calls for people to conserve electricity from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Glendale. Glendale is now warning of rolling blackouts. That's the one thing we definitely don't like, rolling blackouts. This weekend, and I was saying, Rob, uh, before the break, uh, a whole bunch of people, maybe you did, I, I got from uh, Edison an email alert this morning saying, you know, please between four and uh, nine tonight and every night for the next few days, 
Try not to, uh, you know, the normal things about, you know, try to keep your air conditioner turned up a little bit higher, that sort of thing. But it also said, you know, try not to charge your phones between four and nine, which is when many people need to charge their phones when they come home from, you know, working. Try not to uh, recharge if you have an electric vehicle, your electric vehicle between four and nine. There again, a lot of people, that's kind of a time to, to, to do it. And so it raises this sort of interesting question, what happens in the future when we're all being told we need to shift to, for example, electric vehicles? We can't even charge our phones, we're told, because it's hot outside. And uh, with us, we have Brian Dolly, a Republican state senator from the uh, northeastern region of California and also a candidate for governor. So we're going to kind of get a political viewpoint on this. Uh, the question is, is our electrical infrastructure in California going to be good enough? And uh, what would uh, your, uh, Mr. Dolly, your answer be on this uh, issue that we have? Well, number one, you should know that we have in, in areas of California, we actually produce plenty of of electricity problem is we can't get that energy to the places in california where we're short and so number one we need to make sure our transmission lines build some new ones and upgrade them so we can move power around california that's the first easy low-hanging fruit that needs to be done uh, the second thing that needs to be done is that we have to have a more reliable source than wind and solar when it comes to renewables and that's something that the democrat party and gavin newsom has lost focus of because that's why we saw that we need to keep Diablo Canyon uh, open, which we took action on uh, a couple of nights ago. The unfortunate part is, is that all these uh, proposals that they bring forth are driving up the cost of energy in California, uh, and people can't afford to live here. So what's the solution? The solution is to make sure we have balance in our grid, that we can actually get the power uh, where we need it. And we need, we need not shut down uh, gas-fired power plants, natural gas-fired power plants, because we have to have those in times of shortage. And the technology is just not there with batteries. As much as they want to say, talk about it, it's just not available. So we need to make sure we have a long-term plan. And what is happening is they're setting goals uh, with like this 2035 electric vehicles. It's not going to happen. There's no possible way to use 1.8 million barrels of oil every day in California. And that means we're going to be displacing all those uh, combustible engines with electric motors on cars, and it's just not going to happen. Well, and 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 that and that is precisely the point that we were making at the beginning of the segment. That that I don't know if you were with us at that moment, but you know we were getting uh, many of us were getting these alerts today from Edison telling us you know because of the heat, don't charge your phone between four and nine, don't charge your electric car if you have one between four and nine, and then you have to think, well, wait a minute, uh, we're supposed to all be making this shift in the next few years to electric vehicles and, you know, there's this vision of having sort of roads dotted with electrical uh, charging stations. But where's the power coming from when we can't charge our phones now? No, there's two issues. Number one, we don't have the infrastructure to even charge the cars. We don't have the, and the other issue is we don't have the energy to charge the cars. And they're, gonna, they're saying batteries are going are gonna to be the sa saving grace. Uh, but you need lithium to make these batteries in your car, and you need lithium to be putting batteries at your home where you're supposed to store the storage. But somewhere you have to generate the electricity. And they're saying wind and solar are the, the where they're, how they're going to do it. And offshore wind is where they're going to do it and all these other uh, – but at the end of the day, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. When you start thinking about how much energy we actually use, 
40,000 megawatts every hour. And then on top of that, 1.8 million barrels of oil every day. So when you start thinking about how we're going to transition in 13 years, and the track record so far has not been very well, we have not replaced the, the dirty, supposedly dirty, uh, you know, gas-fired power plants that are, that are keeping your lights on right now. They're running at full steam because we're a shortage of power. So, and the other crazy thing is they don't count hydroelectric above uh, 30 megawatts as green. So we have Shasta Dam, we have Oroville Dam. Those are huge power plants, but they don't count those as green over 30 megawatts. So the utilities have to procure, they don't get to count that in their renewable portfolio standard. So there's a lot of issues with what uh, Gavin Newsom and his folks are talking about doing, and we're not going to get there. And, but I can guarantee you this. If you think your energy bill is high now, it will go up because all of the, every one of these new policies requires more money out of your pocket as a rate payer to get it done, to, all get, right. to get where they want to go. All right. Thank you so much. Brian Donnelly, a Republican state senator from the uh, uh, northeastern part of California, also candidate for governor. Did he say if you think your electric bill is high now? Yeah. I know yeah, much it's, is high it's now. No, I don't think there's a <laughs> doubt about that. By the way, we do have a statement from Governor Newsom's office. It says actions the state has taken to accelerate the transition to clean energy have put an estimated 4,000 megawatts on the grid that were not available in uh, July of 2020. goes on to say that since then, the state has also developed emergency measures, including adding generators and a strategic energy reserve, additional procurement and demand response to produce 2,000 megawatts available to respond to emergency conditions like what we are facing today. And yet the flex alerts go on. Here they are. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. And for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. The Associated Press just did an analysis and found many states hardly use their red flag laws that let police take away guns from people who are threatening to kill. This is being blamed on a lack of awareness of the laws and a reluctance to enforce them. Meantime, gun deaths continue to increase. If the laws are there, then why not use them? Mike Lawler is a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. He's also the author of the 1999 Connecticut Red Flag Gun Law, which is the first red flag gun law in the country. Mike, thanks for being with us. So let me actually start off by asking you, what is the situation in Connecticut where you are? Well, the advantage we have in Connecticut is that people have become very accustomed to the law, not just the law enforcement uh, professionals, but also citizens are much more likely to say something if they see something. And I think that's the key ingredient to actually using this law effectively. But what we did see, you know, starting the first few years, it was used very occasionally, 10, 20, 30 times a year. After the uh, Virginia Tech shootings, it spiked up quite a bit as people realized that there are warning signs. And if you report them to the police, they can do something about it. And then uh, after that, after our own Sandy Hook murders in 2012, it spiked up again. So uh, you'll notice in these statistics that came out today, Connecticut is among uh, the most, let's say, aggressive states when it comes to using this law. California has a red flag law on the books. Uh, is uh, California doing a good job on that uh, red flag? Well, you know, it's uh, it's a complicated question to answer because it's important to emphasize that the law in Connecticut, and I think in every one of the 19 states that has it now, it was designed to be a last resort. 
many times when people reach out to the police and report what they're seeing, they're actually reporting a crime that's already been committed. And if that's the case, the police have the more traditional approach of an arrest warrant or a search warrant uh, to deal with that. So we're only talking about cases where uh, police have clear evidence that someone is dangerous and that they have access to guns. Then, uh, and if they're not committing a crime, there's one more option if you have a red flag law. So uh, it may actually be that the California law enforcement officers are are using it, but they're able to use a more traditional tactic before they get to this. It's it's hard to say. If you look at Florida, where they have, ironically, Florida, right, have become very aggressive in using this law, and, and they may actually be using it as a first resort. And if you listen to some of the sheriffs down there, uh, and that may not be such a great idea, but nonetheless, um, you know, one thing that's worth emphasizing, you know, this bill that was signed into law, this bipartisan gun safety bill that was signed into law by President Biden, um, includes a lot of money for training and awareness for both law enforcement professionals, prosecutors, and also for citizens. And, and so that if this law is actually available, people know how to use it. And and I think that's going to, you know, we're waiting in Connecticut to get our allocation of money to do this. But it's a great opportunity for states like California to really spread the word. You know, we mentioned at the top that two things are being blamed for the non-use of red flag laws. One is people are not familiar with it. And two is not wanting to enforce it. Do we have any reason to believe that one is a stronger reason why they're not working as well as envisioned than the other? Is it that people don't want to enforce it? Yeah, well, uh, it is definitely the case that many law enforcement officers, uh, what's the best way to describe it? Strong Second Amendment types, right? And and there have been some recent episodes here in Connecticut where people reached out to me and said they, they reported all this stuff to the police. And the response they got was, well, you know, that's his Second Amendment right to have guns. You know, so so there is definitely that uh, that mentality at present. And you see elsewhere in the country, I don't know about California, but there are sheriffs who choose to use this law because they don't believe it's constitutional. I mean, it is constitutional. Let's just be clear about that. But on the books for more than 20 years here in Connecticut, never been successfully challenged. It follows all of the Fourth Amendment guidelines about searches and seizures. So uh, there's no question about that. But there definitely is some, let's say, ideological resistance to seizing people's guns. All right, Mike Lawler, thank you so much for joining us, a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. The uh, Declaration of Independence, right, it talks about the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But what if that pursuit of happiness is what's bringing you down all the time? It's a lot of pressure. A study published in Current Opinion and Behavioral Sciences finds that obsessively focusing on happiness might be a major obstacle in achieving it. That sounds like a paradox. With us to explain is Lisa Berman, founder and clinical director of the Berman Center, a psychotherapy and mental health treatment center in Atlanta. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You know, I, I think I get this because not only are some people uh, appearing to be obsessed with being happy, they're obsessed with making other people think they're happy. That's a that's dangerous, isn't it? Absolutely. And since COVID, that obsession has increased tremendously. So, yes, that is definitely something that people are obsessed with right now, and they want others to believe that they are happy and want others to be happy. So it is a, it is a paradox. 
Well, walk us through this a bit. Uh, how does somebody go about obsessing about wanting to be happy? How do you do that? I think it's just something that people always want to achieve. You hear parents constantly say, all I want for my children is for them to be happy. You hear this word happy throughout your whole life from the minute you're born and probably until the day you pass. And it's just such a strong word that people become obsessed with achieving this intangible thing of happiness. And then they don't know how to achieve that. And that's what, there's, that's what they put pressure on themselves for. And it's just a constant struggle and battle of how can I get there? What do I need to get there? And what is happiness? Is part of this also driven by a fear of the so-called negative emotions, like uh, being sad or being upset or being angry? Right. I, absolutely. I think people have um, a hard time coping with those negative emotions. I think there's also such a negative connotation of feeling down or anxious or unhappy. So people are constantly wanting to be on the other side of that and express and feel happiness. And it's almost like a competition among people of who's happy. And then how do you define who's happy? And what did you do to get happy? And it just goes on and on and on. So is the opposite true? I mean, if you obsess about being happy and that makes you miserable, then does it follow if you obsess about being miserable, you'll be happy? Uh, I don't think so. Personally or clinically, I don't think so. I think people externally try to do things to be happy. Um, and I don't think if they start obsessing over being unhappy, they'll be happy. I think happiness, as I said, is very intangible. There's a difference between joy and happiness. And happiness comes from a very big internal feeling that you have. And my happiness is going to be different than your happiness. And it's the way you can personally define that. And it's very individualized. You know, I was going to say that the segment is making me sad. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I kind of joke. I, I joke that I'm a curmudgeon. And uh, other people being happy makes me unhappy. But what about people who are really like that? They, they, other people around them being happy makes them very unhappy. And so they're only happy when they make other people unhappy. Right. So... We compare ourselves to so many different people every single day. I mean, social media has made that very possible for us. So they'll see people or we can see people smiling, having a good time, and we don't feel that same level of happiness. But that's really just joy. So while someone on the outside may look happy, really on the inside they, they may not be, but we are constantly striving or jealous of seeing someone who is very happy when you don't feel it. So then we probably want to do what we can to make sure they're not happy or look for things or facts to contradict that they are actually happy. This is getting um, very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm supposed to obsess about being happy or, or if I should just say yeah, I'm miserable and then maybe I'll be happy. I'm obsessed that maybe I'm obsessed. <laughs> So I, I will say that, again, happiness is very internal. So for me personally, I find happiness in helping others and, and doing that, where someone next to me may not find happiness in that, where it's really happiness is driven. True happiness, in my opinion, is driven by purpose, and it's driven by passion, and whether or not you can fulfill that. And it's not just one thing that causes someone to be happy. So when we do those vision boards or New Year's resolutions of what we need to do to be happy, that's very external. 
The stuff internal that makes you happy are the bigger topics of the voids that we try to fill, family connections with social, with people, with purpose, with career. All of that can be can translate more into happiness. But again, every day, happiness fluctuates. Well, how much of, of all of this is is sort of culturally uh, determined. I mean, for example, you know, we live in a, in a, for better or worse, a, a capitalist society. So we are all groomed from childhood, I think, to equate yep. happiness with material wealth. You know, you have more money, you have more property, you have a better paying mm-hmm. job, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. is that necessarily what makes people happy in other parts of the world that have different systems? No, I, absolutely not. I, I think everyone defines happiness differently. And as you said, from the minute you're born, at least in the United States, happiness could be determined based on that ex, their, your possessions or external stuff. But then people are – I've always heard that money doesn't make you happy or that won't make you fully happy because, again, it's very personal. It's very internal. I see the happiest people – in my practice or even in my treatment center who don't possess all those materialistic things. So it really is, it is cultural, it's societal, it's it's the community that's around you. We all just define it differently. So we are constantly, yeah, go ahead. Money, money can't buy you happiness, but if you have money, you can buy your own kind of sadness. That is very true. (laughs) Very true. You can choose what Uh, kind of sadness you have. I always thought right, whoever, I, mean, I always thought whoever said money can't buy you happiness is a fool. <laughs> or, <laughs> to be quite honest, or poor, <laughs> yeah, or poor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely helps with some type of stress and anxiety when you have a lot of money. You don't worry about so many things, but you still worry about other things. You know, more money, more problems. So, my opinion. All right. Thank you so much. Elisa Berman, founder and clinical director of the Berman Center Psychotherapy and Mental Health Treatment Center in Atlanta. I'm going to go out on a limb saying, you know, I'm Rob Archer in today for Mike Simpson. I bet Mike Simpson is happy because he's got some time off. Well, I'm, I'm still working on what I'm supposed to be obsessing about. Uh, Don't obsess I, I, over that. Well, no, I'm making a list of like, should I obsess about this? And, and I'm confused. So hopefully by next week, I'll figure out whether I should be obsessed with being happy or not being happy. There you go. All right. Uh, this has been KNX In-Depth.